Welcome to another episode of False Neutral, the motorcycle podcast from the Universe Podcast Network. I'm Pete. With me, as always, uh, Garrett and Eric are here to entertain you. Eric, hello, Garrett, hello. How are you guys doing? I'm doing well. Doing all right. Just uh, all right. Yeah, I've been staring at my screen doing client work all day, so my eyes are almost to that point where they're bugging out. So that's why I say, yeah, I'm doing all right. Yeah, I know that. <laughs> you know, I was I was walking into work the other morning from my car, and it was just a gorgeous cloudless sky and, and still had kind of the tinge of red from dawn, and, and, and it was just gorgeous. And I thought, you know what? Right now, today, I would really like to be one of those guys that does anything other than go into an office and stare at a Mac <laughs> for the next eight hours. so <laughs> Yeah, I think that's most people's day going into work. You take a look at the building and for that split second decide whether or not you take a step forward or turn around and just go right back home. If I would have been on two or three wheels and I had a helmet with me, it would have been a whole <laughs> lot more difficult. Yeah, no kidding. Um, writing, writing weather kind of stuff last Sunday. We had an accumulation of snow. Not much, but it stuck to the grass, yeah. right? That right. was last Sunday. This Sunday, forecast, 72 and sunny. Yeah, so your weather uh, your weather, and our weather here in Washington have been somewhat related. I was watching the, the weather the other day, and it showed the high-pressure jet stream. And so we had high pressure here, but that pressure from up above has to go somewhere so you guys ended up having low pressure out there that's why we had record high temperatures while you were getting snow we had uh one day here it was 87 degrees and wow. another day was 80 degrees um while you were having snow but now it's beautiful right where you're at and the weather just is tanked here it's you know cold wet it's rainy it's it's getting there. It was only like forty five today, but still. And oh. <laughs> yeah, I want I want to know the genius at ESPN or Major League Baseball who thought that the first week or two in April was a really good time to have a Sunday night baseball game in Detroit. I mean, <laughs> yeah. Who's what short bus did you ride in on? Yeah, no kidding. So anyways, yeah. Uh, old business. You guys, have any old business from uh, past episodes? TW two hundred is still amazing. <laughs> <laughs> okay, now that we got that out of way, out of the way for this week, uh, and 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 uh, someone, well, uh, so the, there's an RZ five hundred group on Facebook, and someone happened to post that they just put Jolly Moto pipes on their RZ five hundred and did a nice idle rev and run and and ride by and. Um, yeah, I had to walk out for a while and just like I, I I missed that sound in my life. I'll just I'll just leave it at that. Should, should never have gotten rid of that one. I know. Do you are you from, <laughs> if you're an RZ person? Are you at all familiar with uh, Bill Wilson of Wilson Performance, uh, RZ 500 engine builder? Uh, he is local to me. Uh, I know him personally. I think we need to have him on the show and have a have a a RZ. Uh, party yeah yeah i think that would be a good one that'd be cool now the 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 one i remember from back in the day is lance gamma bill recently the last couple of years has 
built and tuned the engines for the guy that won the ATV class at uh, Pikes Peak on a, oh, wow. on a, a Banshee-based, very custom build. So between your your Banshee-cylindered Mutant and the RZ500, I, I just, let me write down Bill Wilson, have him on. I'm sure I can get him to come talk to us. That'd be that a good be, one. That'd be uh, cool. Also, my my engine sounds contest. I came up with a prize. Modern Motorcycle Technology by Massimo Clark. It's a book I reviewed on Hooniverse some time ago. My copy is up for grabs for anybody who can tell me what type. Now, I'm not looking for make and model, but I want to know the configuration and, and anything you can tell me about the type of motorcycles that you hear in our beginning and ending little sound clips. So uh, a very, very interesting book that I like a lot, but I'm willing to give it away to see if anybody can do that. Uh, I also neglected to pitch uh, Smack Dab. Smack Dab we talked about when Cager was on. Uh, 675 miles, 16 and a half hours, takes place on the Saturday closest to the summer solstice from uh, north-central Kansas, almost starting at the Nebraska border, going straight north to Rugby, North Dakota, about 42 miles from the Canadian border. Uh, If you have any interest at all, go to the website, smackdab281.com. O-R-G. So I wanted to make sure that I get that out there. I'll probably push that from now until June. I will not be able to go this year. And last year when my wife and I did it, she said, you realize this is not going to be our vacation every year doing this same <laughs> long run. <laughs> and the other day, you know, we were talking about it, that we're, we're actually going to be uh, visiting family, so we won't be able to uh, make it this year. And she kind of looked at me and went, you know, I'm... Um, I'm really kind of sad that we're not going to be able to do it. And then she put her head in her hands and said, oh, my God, what have I become? <laughs> uh, I did get a a text message from a loyal listener, one of the two or three that we have, who said, Garrett is no longer allowed to do the intro. I will quote him, Garrett sounded almost as wooden as an oak tree. <laughs> <laughs> I knew that after I did that intro that it probably wasn't the best. And I had, in fact, uh, thinking about this yesterday, I was going to say, you know what, let me do the intro again this time. And then uh, I kind of got on the, the call a little bit late, and so I didn't even get a chance to say something. But next week, maybe, next week, next, next week, give me round two. Okay. I bet it'll be at least... A small percentage point better. Everybody's going to listen to it and go, wow, I really want to listen to the whole podcast all the way through now. Yeah. What, what most people don't realize is that when they hear something on either radio, TV, even a podcast, you know, what's the background? How long have they been doing this? Because if it's not something you've done a lot, go, go yeah. try and do it yourself and just, you know, do it into your phone or whatever and then play it back and tell me how good it is. It's right. Yeah, if you do it about 300 times, you, you, you finally start to sound good. So it's, Yeah, well, you know. I can officially say that that was the very first introduction <laughs> to basically anything that I've ever done. So 
Uh, I think that it'll probably get better from here on out, but maybe the listeners can have their own vote. Well, we'll try it once more. You're you're here just because you bring such a with all of your experience and knowledge about bikes. You know, you're not the comic relief. You're you're not the yeah. Ed McMahon here. So yeah. uh, it's it's not my incredible voice or uh, radio abilities that bring me here. It's more of my knowledge of two stroke street bikes. Actually, you do have kind of a, a gravelly. I don't know. It's kind of a rock salt and honey thing you got going on there. I don't know what that's supposed to mean, but. <laughs> uh, also, the big news. Our conversation last week motivated me to get busy, put in the needle and seat in the CL125, put it all back together, and momentarily was freaking out because I got it all back together and it was still leaking. And I thought, oh, no, that wasn't the problem until I realized I had not tightened the clamp on the bottom of the fuel line going into the carb. <laughs> yeah. So I tightened that up, and hey, it it was nice and dry. So this morning it went down to the local uh, bike shop, and I have a state safety inspection. So I took it around town, uh, just you know, a couple miles to see how. And it actually is a fully functional, street-worthy motorcycle after a year and a half. So I can congratulations. Yeah, I was very very pleased about that. Um. Okay, let's get into today's subject, which is, was going to be the three-bike challenge, but Garrett gave me a really good suggestion, and it became the four-bike challenge. I was going to say, I did that because I've been, there's, there's so many motorcycles that have been coming out within the last year that I'm really excited about, and I was just hoping to get to talk to uh, you guys about them a little bit. But at any rate. There are some guys, to digress, there are some guys that are all about the riding techniques you know they they want to talk about uh where you initiate a corner and braking and all that some guys just want to talk about race heroes they're really into the people that are in the sport for me it's always been about the machines i can sit and talk about the machines long after i'm bored talking about who won what championship when or the process of riding itself so Name the bike you love most in four different categories. One is the one that you have personally owned or have ridden it long enough to know all of the idiosyncrasies of it. Category two, one that you haven't ridden that's that's highest on your bucket list that you could honestly see yourself purchasing with your own money. You know, everybody would love to say, wow, I'd like to have a Bruff Superior yeah, probably not going to happen for me on what I make. So realistically, what bike have have you not ridden that you think you might want to own? Uh, three, name a bike you don't personally wish to own, but you just love that they're out there in the world. Uh, either it doesn't fit your riding style or you couldn't or wouldn't spend the money for it. But wow, it's just one of those ones that if you ever saw one, you just want to run up and hug it. And then finally, Garrett's suggestion, uh, name a bike that's been introduced to the market within the last, what, two, three years, something like that, that's a regular production bike that's currently available that you go, wow, I'm really excited about it. That makes me excited about new bikes in general because they introduced this one. So, number one, best bike you've personally owned. Well, for me, the best bike that I've personally owned 
And in fact, I think that um, Pete, you did a snap judgments on uh, one of the same uh, models. Um, but as also, I just have to preface this with saying, is also for different reasons, one of my most despised motorcycles was my 2005 Buell Firebolt XB12R. It was the first and the only motorcycle that I ever purchased new off the showroom floor. That's how much I really wanted one. And I want to say that I hate American V-Twins. And felt, in fact, that felt so good to say. I'm going to say it again. <laughs> I hate American V-Twins. Nevertheless, Do we need to get I, Wayne Moyer on the line? <laughs> <laughs> and there's probably maybe one uh, listener that will probably drop because of that statement. But... Um, I feel like with the Buell Firebolts, Eric Buell built the best motorcycle that could have possibly been built around that engine. Uh, The American V-Twins, I don't feel like have progressed as well as European or Asian counterparts have. Um, their efficiency isn't great. They don't make a lot of power per displacement. Um, with that being said, the Buell was really lightweight. It had a a good amount of torque. Um, I felt that it was always lacking a fair amount of horsepower, but Eric Buell worked with all of those things and he made a short wheelbase, which really matched the power of the bike well um i didn't like the brakes on it it had um the zero torsional load uh, inverted disc uh, front brake on it which i feel like is better in theory than it is in practice um it, it was designed to limit the bikes wanting to stand up when hard braking in a corner and i don't think that they achieved that at all um braking power was pretty low and also, I felt like hard breaking into a corner. It just wanted to stand up a little bit. Um, with that being said, it was exciting to me when I first saw it because of the engineering aspect of it. Uh, you know, good, bad, or indifferent, the engineering really made it a special motorcycle with the fuel in the frame, the oil in the swing arm, uh, you know, the, the low exhaust and the whole weight balance of it. It with all of those things, it performed as well as it possibly could have with the engine. And it looked beautiful. I I still do think that the Firebolts and the Lightnings, the City Crosses, are one of the better looking motorcycles that have been produced in recent times. And I think that Eric Buell as a person and as a motorcycle engineer is one of the most important people in motorcycling. Not to say that he's built the best motorcycle in the world, but he has changed motorcycling and he has asked questions of design and engineering with some of the things that he has done. So with that being said, I loved my Buell. I got made fun of a lot from some of my friends. I think they probably hate American V twins as much as I do, but also, you know, in the right circumstance, I can appreciate them. I really like the mutant Buell kind of bobber motorcycles that are made. I think the American V-Twins look beautiful. I just don't think in a sport bike platform, they're remotely near the right engine for the design. Uh, So with that being said, I love the Buell Firebolt. 
there are things that I didn't like about it, but still, nonetheless, my favorite motorcycle that I have ever owned. I, uh, I, I've ridden the S1 Lightning. Uh-huh. It was at the same time I owned my RZ. And, and it was it, and it was interesting how diabolically different they were, yeah. uh, especially the first time when I rolled off the throttle and thought I was going to do a stoppy from yeah. engine braking because I wasn't right. used to that. Yeah. But uh, it was a cool. Now, it was it was an interesting bike. I know that the S1 Cyclones were the earlier generation. I think that Buell refined them a lot from for for good or bad. They refined them a lot when they went to the Firebolt, but. I think was the S1 Cyclone was it carbureted? I don't remember uh, if they got into the, light, the fuel injection. Yeah, the, I think the light, the Lightning was. I think the Cyclone was. I seem to recall. So yeah, now Gary, yeah. Your, yours was still a tube frame, right? It was not a tube frame. Oh, okay, okay. No, it it was the the so the frame held the fuel in it, right, so it was right. almost like a monocoque type of right. I'm you can the I don't design, know. If, yeah. Yeah, so aluminum, uh, very large, I guess, yeah, tube, but a perimeter tube, not like a, you know, didn't have a backbone type of frame. So, and I know that you did your uh, snap judgment on a lightning. I don't even I, remember what uh, what my snap judgment. Yeah, of it's you been who, a while. For the, those of you who don't know, uh, you can go to tanshinomi.com and look at, uh, kind of a thumbs up, thumbs down movie review style review of a whole bunch of different bikes. I don't remember what I did. As and far as I, I think it's been a while since I read yours about the lightning, and I think that I more or less agreed with you. Although I think that you gave it a little too. Uh, I think that you gave it more points than I would have, like in the performance category. Um, which you know, with that being said, the engine I felt was underpowered, but. For the chassis and for probably the average rider, I think somebody could equally say that it wasn't overpowered because a lot of the sport bikes these days are definitely overpowered. A lot of the 1,000cc sport bikes with their uh, approaching or even exceeding 200 horsepower is just unmanageable. You, you need to realize that my road racer could tickle 100 miles an hour so that you – know. yeah. <laughs> so, so to put that in perspective, earlier today we were texting back and forth, and there was a uh, uh, Honda VF 1000R, the full fairing job on bring a trailer this morning, and we were going back and forth on that. And I, I was reading through the post and stuff like that, and it's hard to believe that in 1984 when that bike was there, it was a 1,000cc V4 with gear-driven cams and all of that, and it was 100 horsepower. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was a 1,000cc, you know, leader-class bike. The it was 100 horsepower. The, yeah. the thing that is still... Kind of my frame of reference is I can remember when the original VMAX made 145 crank horsepower, and that was that was like unbelievable. A, that was insane, you know? Yeah, and so those things had like a 10 second quarter mile, and they were like the fastest production motorcycle for a period of time. And, uh, and I, I think they still make them though, well, they um, make or the, at least they did up until recently. They made the new one. There, there's a second right. generation, which is totally different. Correct me if I'm wrong, because that was my high school era. Um, didn't Congress try to outlaw that bike or something along the lines of that because it was so, for the time, ridiculously fast? Well, yeah. they were talking about horsepower limits 
That maybe that's what it was. And and it was about the same time that that was also being discussed in Europe. It was not directly because of that, but that was one of the bikes that they were talking about. Eric, um, what's your number one out of the bikes you've owned? Well, that one's easy. <laughs> Doesn't take a lot of guessing. Uh, it is it is the RZ500. Um, that bike still to this day speaks to me on so many different levels it's not even funny um it it was not the best handling machine it was a machine you had to ride hard on the racetrack to get it to steer correctly it didn't like it didn't like a light touch on the track when i when i did take it on the track but riding out on the street it was great it handled well the brakes were good especially for the era um on the track well we discussed that in a previous episode it was it was they were good for about three four laps and then when you grab a handful of brakes and you kind of go okay when you gonna grab okay now but it was a light bike i think it was it might have been 400 pounds fully wet it might have been lighter than that i can't remember now uh but it was it was easy to maneuver you know walk around in and out of parking spots whatever you kicked it over, and it just had that that glorious two-stroke sound and the smoke behind you and all that, or you know, depending on which injector oil you were using at the time, how much smoke it actually did. It actually warmed up relatively quick, and you could, within like two minutes of firing it up, even on a cold day, it carbureted just fine away. I mean, granted, it was all stock, but... And you could putt around town, and it didn't load up. You know, it was fine, but as soon as you hit about seven grand, 7,500, and it got on the pipe... It was a completely different machine, and and I always describe it as one of that thing when you wound it up and got on the pipe, going from off the pipe to on the pipe, and in the power band, it was like watching you know the the Enterprise go to warp because everything just kind of stops for a second, everything elongates, and then bang, you're gone, and it just it, it just moved. And the, the crazy thing is, is with stock pipes, it was relatively quiet. Yeah, well, at least there were more silencers on those ones. I, I don't know if it was like the TZ750 where it ended up looking like a porcupine of exhaust pipes coming out everywhere. Uh, so on the stock exhaust pipes, did they all stay pretty well managed on it, all come out uniformly? Relatively so. So there were there were there there was one on each side of the rear wheel, and then two came out um, underneath the tail. Yeah. And the other downside is it was good for about three hours, and then you kind of wanted to get off it because those two expansion yeah. chambers that were underneath the uh, right underneath your saddle, yeah. that heat soak got to you physically in ways that made it not very comfortable. Yeah. So <laughs> one, one of the few. One of, yeah, uh, one of the few downsides uh, of that. But um, did you like it more on the track or more on the street? More on the street. I think it was a really good seven tenths kind of machine. Yeah. Um, you know, maybe eight tenths. Uh, I think the only modification I did to it, it had uh, the it had anti dive in the forks, which was kind of standard for that era. Um, and then the thing was you put block, block, block off plates on it, and I had uh, uh, what one down, two up on the for the sprockets, and it just you know it, it made it run you know just a little more livable. Um, but yeah, it was, it was great. It was great. It was a lot of fun in the street, and that was made for twisty back roads. That you know, like a really nice Sunday morning kind of ride. 
Yeah. And for the listeners that have never really experienced an old two-stroke street bike, especially uh, one of the higher performance models like an RZ500 or a TZ750 or others, they are, I mean, they call them widowmakers for a reason and not because they were just outright powerful. It's because you had such a narrow window where that power came on. It was, you know, it's what two strokes are known for. It was like nothing, 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 you know, 7,500 RPMs come. And then between 7,500 RPMs and 8,500 RPMs, you could jump from 40 horsepower up to 120 horsepower. It was almost instantaneous. And if your tire was not ready for it, the bike was going to go they took I, a lot of skill. I had an H2 for a yes. very short time, and it had stock pipes, so it wasn't radically sharp, but it took a certain amount of experience and knowledge to know when you could pull that trigger and when you couldn't. And yeah. a lot of times, I think people got themselves into trouble because they thought as long as you twisted the throttle the same number of degrees, it was going to behave predictably and that's just not the way it is depending on where you are in the rev band and how much gas you're giving it and what was happening a second and a half ago it's kind of like driving a turbo bike you know yes sometimes it's going to react one way and sometimes react another way yeah and you have to be smart enough and have enough experience to know that without killing yourself before you get to that point of experience right So I was just going to say, it's exactly like a turbo where the load that you place on the motorcycle will have an effect on where that RPM and where the power is going to kick in. But what I can say about those motorcycles is that they are perhaps the most difficult motorcycle to master, but they are the most rewarding once you do. They give back in ways that other motorcycles just cannot. Yeah. I was talking about the RPMs and power. I think... And I'm, again, scratching off the top of my head here, but I think that bike made 85 horsepower. So it wasn't like, yeah. although for the day, though, 8,500cc, 85 horsepower, and we're talking the yeah. mid-80s, that's, you know, that's pretty substantial. But it went from probably 35 horsepower at, say, 7,000 RPM to 85 horsepower or 80 horsepower at 9,000 yeah. RPM. So that's a very steep ramp if you weren't ready for it. Yeah, and the beautiful thing about those two-strokes is they're kind of like a small-block Chevrolet where, or like, you know, an old LS6 454, you put on a pair of pipes, you give it a little bit of compression, and then all of a sudden, a few minor changes, you've gone from 85 horsepower up over, well over 100 horsepower, some very minor changes. Yeah, uh, 100, 110 horsepower was pretty doable. That's kind of the limit to it, unless you really wanted to start playing with stuff at that point. But, I mean, I knew people had that, and they were still dead reliable at at that point. So Absolutely. So, so Pete, what about you? Uh, I I really thought about this, and I've got to say it was my 74 CB350F four-cylinder Honda. It was just... It was the one that was the whole package. It was comfortable to ride on, had a real comfortable seat. It wasn't so small it felt like a toy. It wasn't so big that you felt like it wasn't maneuverable or you you had to manhandle it. It had a four-into-one pipe on it. It just sounded nice. It was just fun to ride on it. It wasn't eerily smooth. Everyone talks about, oh, it's like a Swiss watch. It really isn't. But it was still... The noises and the vibrations that it did make were really just so uh, cool. And it, 
it was reliable. It was fun. It was affordable. It was pretty. Some of the bikes that I've had were great bikes, but they just, they were not charming looking. A friend of mine I had when I first started riding had a 76 CB400F, and I thought that's what I wanted. I thought I was settling for the, the older style 350 with the the metal shrouds over the forks and some of the older, more 1960s looking style to it. Once I got it, I really ended up falling much more in love with it than I ever was with the 400F. So that that had that was the whole package and there were other bikes that i i really liked but they had some personal baggage with them uh i had a gb500 that i bought for a song that i loved took it on vacation did a 700 mile day my first day of vacation and by the time i got to denver the engine had spun a bearing in the case so Fortunately, my friend Rusty lived in Denver, and he lent me his Hawk GT for the rest of my vacation. I put 3,000 miles on his bike while mine was in Denver at the dealership where he worked getting rebuilt. And after that, it always had a weird vibration that was really noticeable to me because it hadn't been there. And my local dealer said, no, that's typical. I was like, no, it wasn't there before. Something's wrong. So yeah. I ended up selling it because I was so disappointed in it. A really nice GB500 would rival the 350F, but I'd still have to give it to the 354. It's just such a charming... It's it's everything that everybody ever liked about what Honda did to motorcycling in one really cool little package. Is this picture that you sent us, is, is this the one that you that, had? or is that this... is No, that is my bike, yes. Wow, that was beautiful such a timeless motorcycle that is a motorcycle that will always be beautiful it will always be attractive i think and i really like them i bought it stock with rusted out pipes and bent handlebars so i put the mac four into one pipe on it with uh with a competition muffler that was just on the edge of being inappropriate but made it sound really so good and uh, I'd also had BMW R65LS bars, so they the handle grips kind of came down a little bit past horizontal, but it was still more of a superbike bar than a drag bar. Gave it a perfect rider's triangle, and that bike is now owned by an aircraft mechanic, and in about once a year, I send him a uh, LinkedIn message and go, hey... Do you still have it? Is it still in good shape? And he's always up. Yep, it's exactly the way he gave it to me. Take it out, run it every once in a while, but it still looks exactly the same. So that makes me very happy. Is it still the original paint on it and yep. the original yep. bright work and all that? Yep. The only things wow. I changed were the, the pipes and the bars. Yeah. I shouldn't even say it reminds me. That's kind of doing a disservice to your bike. But it reminds me of my Honda CM400C. Not that mine was anywhere remotely this cool or anything like that but mine uh, was black it had a lot of chrome on it and all that and and for as uh, terrible as that cm400c was i do really like it the old hondas with the reliability the comfort that you got riding them knowing that you were going to get from point a to point b there's something attractive about that inherently agreed um my only disappointment is i the only picture i have of it is this one 
and the original is just a little grainy snapshot that isn't much better than the scan that I did of it. So I really don't have any nice, really sharp pictures of it. Yeah. Well, I suppose you could always contact the new owner and perhaps have him send you some if you really felt so inclined. Yeah, that's true. That's true. <laughs> One of our uh, Universe Network uh, people, uh, Cameron Vanderhorst from the uh, Camden Tub podcast, messaged me the day. And I didn't realize you were talking about the four cylinder up front, but he uh, he messaged me this morning and was like, hey, I'm going to look at the CB350 today. And it's, it's, it's the twin, but it was it's just funny, like timing on that. Um, and I put the picture in our in our chat. So if Pete wants to put it in there, he can. But it's it's amazing how even that bike still looks relatively good. And, you know, it's a thousand dollar bike. Yeah, absolutely. So. I mean, for a thousand dollars, just looking at this picture, I have no idea what kind of mechanical condition it's in. But um, these motorcycles, especially for a thousand dollars, you'll never lose money on that so long as it stays in decent condition they're a timeless motorcycle they're beautiful they're known for reliability and i really don't think you can go wrong with it uh definitely a great uh cruise around the town kind of motorcycle especially the two cylinders not so much for the highway i mean they're a little bit underpowered um but they still they look amazing i would definitely for a thousand dollars i wouldn't hesitate on a motorcycle like that i I have to say i'm kind of like the porsche 911 guy that hates the 914 if you look if you look at the the, the 354 cylinder didn't sell very well because it was a whole lot more expensive and it really wasn't yeah. all that much faster than the twins and it wasn't as fast as the two-stroke twins and triples that suzuki and yamaha were making yeah. but everyone said you know wow this is just such a finely crafted engine when you compare how the 354 is put together and you look at a 350 twin, Honda came out and said the 350 twin was designed to last 10,000 miles. The The cam runs on the head. There's no shell bearings in there or anything. So to me, my snobbishness comes out. And <laughs> just like you yeah. hate the four, or the 914 for not being a 911, the twin would be a great bike, except that every time anybody says, you know, hey, I've got a 350, you go, really? No, it's the twin. Oh, okay, forget yeah. it. If you've owned a four, then you're probably not going to appreciate a twin. But if you've never owned either and a twin pops up, I think that you're probably uh, at least likely going to appreciate the way that it looks and, and all that. But I can see that definitely if you've had a four, you can never go back. Okay, Uh Category two, a bike you haven't ridden that you want to own someday. That you could or would spend your own money for, so it's not an unobtainium kind of thing. Right, yes. Not not something in the Barber Museum that there's one of in the world. <laughs> a Briton! <laughs> so I've been thinking about this one a lot lately, even before we talked about it as a category uh because well i'm always looking at motorcycles that i want to have and i'm always like scheming of ways that i might be able to get them and the one that i have been looking at and probably relating to the buell that i had so when i said that i hate american v twins but what i really love are v twins just not necessarily american ones so i have been looking at the ktm super duke 1290 and I love the torque of a V motor, particularly a V twin. And when the RC8 first came out, it was more when I kind of aligned my riding style with the sport bike. 
and, and I loved the design of it for the same reason that I loved with KTM. I loved the RC8. The shape of it was different. It had the V-twin, which I really liked. Not overwhelming power, but still had a lot of power. And then the Super Duke came out, and they took the same motor, increased the displacement. It has brutal torque, which is what I really like in a motorcycle. But then they packaged it into uh, a, a type of motorcycle that I really start... I find myself gravitating towards, which is the slightly more upright riding style. Still sporty. I haven't gone to the full cruiser mentality yet, but I'm getting there. Uh, but the Super Duke kind of fits the categories that I really like right now. And it has the power and torque that I think the Buell was missing. And that is a motorcycle that's it's expensive, like Eric was saying in a prior episode. K- KTM is kind of a niche market, and they do have higher prices. But with that, I do think that you get the quality of components that you should expect for that higher price. Um, that's something, though, that I definitely see myself in in the next several years is the Super Duke. I didn't think the Super Duke was real attractive. The new, what is it, the GT? The, yeah, the, mm-hmm. I have to say, with the with the extra little fairing in the front, makes a big difference. They're they're yeah. growing on me quite a bit. They're still a little postmodern angular for me, yeah. but I would have to take a heat gun to all of the graphics on those things. With all yeah, no, I know. That's a bike that you have to see in person. You can't yes. look at it in pictures and make a judgment friend of mine owns a dealership that handles ktm and every time i get in there and i walk past i'm just like it just it just has an incredible presence to it that you don't get from a lot of bikes the super duke is not it's something that when i was first looking at it i really didn't like the looks of it but it has grown on me and i definitely agree with you with the colors of it particularly the orange and white uh, version that they did i thought was just absolutely horrendous the black one with the orange wheels is slightly better but i still am not an orange wheel kind of a guy and you'll see in that picture that i posted up of my buell it's black and i powder coated the wheels uh, kind of a graphite color that motorcycle was originally one of the red ones with the yellow wheels on it and i i hated that color scheme so i altered my buell to look like it does now um and that's probably something that i would do with a super duke too if i bought one i would absolutely have to change the color scheme on it but everything else about it i like sounds like you had a freight train going through your house eric <laughs> I, was, I was wondering if you gotten eaten by your dog <laughs> yeah yeah my wife just came home so the dog was excited it's, i didn't know how much you could hear her in the background but yeah 180 pound dog makes all the noise when she moves around yeah <laughs> yeah what, what's what's on your bucket list yeah so i had to had to do a little thinking on this one because if i'm looking at well, newer bikes, well, that falls into category number four, so we'll we'll deal with that in a little bit. So to me, this was bucket list. What's a bike I want? It's an older bike either, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm getting to the age of like, okay, what bikes from my youth or, you know, growing up, what was a cool old bike even back then? And the bike I keep coming back to, I think, is one of those timeless ones. And I do, I've never sat on one. I've only seen one. Um I remember seeing one in a dealership when I was in college and had been sitting there for a while. Um, but it's a Honda RC30. Yeah. And it's just Japanese bikes can be accused of being a little soulless because they're so clinically well done. And But that was a bike that was so clinically well done, it had 
a certain kind of soul. And of course, some of that is, is not just the design because they got that right, but the sound of the engine running and especially on, you know, on when it's up in the higher RPMs and the gear driven cams and, and the firing order and all that. So I, I looked at, I tried to look, find one really quick and I couldn't, but they are still attainable in that. I think you can find a really nice one for around 30 grand. And that sounds like a lot of money until you price like say a, Ducati twelve ninety nine Panigale Superleggera or something like that or whatever you know which is you know starts at thirty and can quickly go to fifty. One of those are they going to be worth money down the road? I don't know, but one thing I know is that an RC thirty is always going to be you, you're never going to lose money on that bike unless you go and throw it down the road and even then you could probably fix it up and and still be okay. So that would be a great bike that you could ride. You know, once a month, maybe twice a month on a on a you know a nice Sunday morning ride or whatever, or take to a rally, you know, lightly ride it on a track maybe once in a while because that kind of deserves to be done. Um, but that you can almost put in your living room, wipe you know spousal approval, notwithstanding. <laughs> uh, but it, it but it's a piece of art as well. It literally can be a piece of art. Yeah, I wholeheartedly agree with you. And the RC fifty one is one of my probably for so many of the same reasons why you like the RC30. I love the RC51. Um the well again talking about the V motor on them. Uh I from most motorcycle enthusiasts and purists that I've talked to, the RC51 and probably the RC30 are some of the most uh, incredible riding experiences that you can have. I've never ridden an RC30, but the RC51 is absolutely incredible. And um, the RC30 is probably more beautiful. It's got the more timeless look, and I like the open rear and, swing And I arm. think it's a little bit more legendary. I mean, at the time, yeah, it, was, it was so much on another level. Yeah. Even it, as far it really as was like, it's like a, almost like a Formula One kind of machine yeah. you know, on the street rel- you know, at, at the relative time. Yeah, and it was not cheap when it was new. It was a... I think it was like a fifteen or twelve or fifteen thousand dollar bike, and you know, in nineteen eighty eight. I think it was and, the most expensive. You know, at the time, it was the most expensive thing that had ever come out of Japan. Right, and uh, it carries a little bit of that classic era Honda feel, like the yeah, the Grand Prix sixes and stuff. When they were really still, at least as far as four strokes, the gurus. It kind mm-hmm. of still had yeah. that feel. By the time the later ones came out. There's a whole lot of other people who had caught up to them, and they didn't stand out as being the motorcycle people. Right. And technically, the, technically, ahead, an RC45 is probably a better bike overall. I mean, just for age and technology, but and and it looks good, but it's still not an RC30. You know, and yeah. it's just the uh, RC30 was also. It's at a time where the street motorcycles were a little bit more closely related to the GP racing motorcycles. The technology difference between them wasn't as great as, say, today. You, It would be extremely difficult to replicate a GP-style motorcycle in a, a street-going uh, motorcycle today. But the RC30, you're at that point where you can... I mean, that is like on the edge of being a GP-level motorcycle for the time. Yep, agreed. I really struggled with this one, I, I have to say, because it's the whole, what would you really spend your money for? I really like my Spider, but it's not two wheels. It's not a motorcycle. To me, it's no more a motorcycle than a, a four-wheel ATV or a snowmobile would be. 
but it's my long distance touring mount and I really don't need a motorcycle that's going to fulfill the same purpose in my life that that does. So I I thought about um well first of all I thought about the streaker which the Boltaco streaker was my first article. Hooniverse did a series of articles by different authors what's your Eleanor. And I said, "Oh, the streaker, that's the one that I re-. But you know what? They're underpowered. They're collectible enough and rare enough that I'm not sure I want that and I'm building something close enough to it and close enough to some of the other two-stroke street bikes that I like that I think I would rather have that. What else would I be looking for? I thought about the new 1800 Valkyrie, but it's such a big bike. The only thing I'd want to use it for is exactly the kind of long trips on the highway that I use my Spider for. So I'm like, well, okay, that kind of doesn't really have another niche to it uh i love the engine in my in my uh spider so i'd really like to find an aprilia futura which is the same engine in two wheels i would love to be able to ride one of those and they're still out there in fairly decent shape for reasonable prices they're not a super radical sport bike they're comfortable but kind of sporty but they've got luggage so you could you could take one out on a long trip if you wanted to. You could use them in town. You can commute. They're exotic, but they're not so unaffordable or so unreliable. You couldn't use them every day. So I was kind of playing with that. So I'm going to say either that or, to be really practical, a Honda CB500X. Yeah. I thought they were ugly when they first came out until enough people said, wow, you know, hey, for the price, this is a really nice mid-sized bike. You can do everything with it. And I sat on one at the dealership, and I'm like, wow, I could really see myself doing all kinds of different things on this. Once you get past the looks of it, it's kind of one of those things that isn't a leader anywhere. Kind of the TW200 of a mid-sized street yeah, bike. You right. could enjoy it for a long time, no matter how experienced you get. So given that I could buy one of those new, and the Futura hasn't been around for a number of years, and I'd be buying one used, I'm going to say CB500X. Yeah, and I like the CB500X, and that style of motorcycle, it's got just a little bit more suspension than uh, your, like, say, FZ6, you know, similar looking. But it's something that you could throw some some panniers on and, and probably damn near ride it almost anywhere you wanted to. Uh, you could even probably throw some slightly more aggressive tires on it and do an adventure ride on it, so long as the terrain wasn't too aggressive. But, you know, they have kind of the look of the Africa twin, but maybe suited more towards the on-road. Yeah, I really I, like them. Pete, there's a, uh, there just happens to be a Futura for sale, starting bid of $2,800 in Indiana on eBay. Ooh, there's one that I saw on Cycle Trader with like six thousand or eight thousand miles on it, and I was like, la 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 la, I can't hear that. <laughs> <laughs> they remind me of the Yamaha. Gosh, what was the FJR? model? The F, yeah, F, FJR thirteen hundred. Yep, they, they look they're so similar. Yeah, it's a good you looking know, bike. I, I know someone who had one. Uh, know someone uh, loosely knew someone who had one, and and uh, when we're, we're camping at laguna for moto gp back in 07 and he pulled up and then i was just like i kind of the same pizza reaction I'm like hey how's it going <laughs> yeah you know this motorcycle though looking at it it looks like 
it has a writing position, and granted, I've never sat on one. It looks like it has a writing position that looks more uncomfortable than it should, given the style of motorcycle. It looks like something that would, like, probably in theory ride it for long distances, but it looks like it would be uncomfortable to do so. So I don't know if that's true. Maybe you guys would know better than me, but it looks like it would be a little bit uncomfortable to ride. Now, I've heard people say that it's comfortable. To me, it seems like the the bars are a little low given the size of the windshield and you're not going to have yeah. a whole lot of wind pressure on your chest. Right. And that's what I, they make Healy bars for. <laughs> yeah. That concludes part one of our discussion. Tune in again next week when we'll have the second half of our discussion in which we'll be talking about the bikes that we don't necessarily want personally, but dearly love. And We'll talk about the best bikes introduced to the market in the United States in the past year or two. So tune in next week for statements such as these. I love the way they look. I hate the way they look. I despise them. Did you pick something Italian? Uh-oh. I did not. Oh, okay. okay. Nothing's ever going to approach that. It's an amazing machine. I'm sorry. I don't like it. I can't get past the looks. You guys might make fun of me. I just have this total emotional, unexplicable, <laughs> undefensible love. If I had to pick one, that's that's it. So that's all coming up next week on part two. In the meantime, go to Hooniverse.com and leave us a message. Tell us what you'd like us to cover or talk about on the podcast. Rate and review us on iTunes, and we will see you next week for Bikes We Love. Thanks for listening, and see you next week.